0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Coming up on the programme this week, the big global story of the week was Afghanistan and the sudden takeover by the Taliban. 25 years after they first took Kabul and 20 years since a US-led force pushed them out, they're back in the capital, just weeks after the US forces left. A lot's changed in those 25 years and the Taliban now seem a bit more savvy about the media while they've been mostly out of sight and out of mind for our media until now.
2: The the Taliban also have a generation of their own uh, in the cultural department, the political department, media department, that they are aware of how the media world works.
1: But first, our media were back in emergency mode this week, with the sudden switch to alert level four and the dawn of Delta.
3: Hi fellas, Uh, McLean's college pupils and teachers have just been told to take everything home Uh, and this next text is our government department in Auckland all working from home tomorrow. Uh, We were told it was a management decision, says Anne. So, interesting times indeed. Hello Liam.
1: That was Newstalk ZB's Simon Barnett just before 4pm last Tuesday reading out texts from listeners, some of whom were at institutions in and around Auckland, which weren't waiting around for the 6pm announcement on alert levels before taking action. After which Liam called in to say this.
3: Good, have you just been to a supermarket? I just walked out of one and
0: uh,
4: it's, it is chaos Considering they're going to be open tomorrow, it's <laughs> I mean, yes.
1: crazy. And Simon and his co-host James Daniels were unimpressed by that.
4: We are
3: laughing at them when we laughed just <laughs> that then. Is, yeah, That's, that's is, extraordinary to me, it, Liam. When you see all around the world, we've been in a situation before. The supermarkets will be open tomorrow. You'll be able to buy toilet paper tomorrow and Saturday and Sunday. And it's would you? How many people would you suggest were there? Uh, in the hundreds, mate.
0: I mean, if, if it's going to spread, it's going
3: to spread there. Yeah.
1: Meanwhile, over on Magic Talk Radio, Drive Time host Graham Hill seemed not to believe it. It'll be busy, that's all. Panic buying. I haven't seen any panic buying. Didn't look like panic buying to me. But when Heather Duplicy-Ellen took over the mic on News Talk ZB soon after, she had a different point of view on panic buying.
4: Also, Anne says, Heather, why don't you remind these morons that the supermarkets will be open throughout the lockdown? It's ridiculous to panic buy. Do you know what? I actually think panic buying is an entirely rational response. I think if you know that everybody else is going to panic buy, leaving you potentially short on the flour, which did happen, that you want to be able to get your hands on, then the rational thing to do is get in there first and get the flour. So no criticism from me, 16 away from five.
1: Soon after that on RNZ National, Lisa Owen told Checkpoint listeners this.
4: Police say they're aware of lengthy queues outside supermarkets throughout Tamaki Makoto as well. They're increasing police numbers at those locations to provide both the workers and the public with reassurance.
1: Wonder why police might be needed at our supermarkets. Meanwhile, in the run-up to the 6pm alert-level announcement, News Hub's website was harvesting random social media blurts from anxious Kiwis under the headline, This is going to hurt. Though back on Magic Talk, one listener at least told Graham Hill he was looking forward to a lockdown. Hi Graham, says Tony. I say bring on the wanky lockdown. I'm a chucky that delivers it to supermarkets. Supermarkets are making a killing. And so do I with the extra loads I get to do. Earlier, News Newstalk ZB's political editor Barry Soper told ZB's listeners, at some length, how the decision would be made and announced later on. And after a few minutes of all that, it became pretty clear that Barry Soper had buried the lead a little.
3: Now, uh, one of my very good sources during this pandemic... Uh, I've been told, and this is uh, by no means being checked out at this stage, and uh, you don't want to cause uh, any alert because of it, but uh, as he believes this person uh, who's carrying COVID-19, probably the Delta strain, uh, wasn't vaccinated and was not linked to the borders, and he travels between, as I understand it from this contact, uh, between Auckland and the Coromandel
1: Barry Soper said that this was unconfirmed information and he didn't want to cause any alarm, but it probably did in the Coromandel district. Meanwhile, online news websites had busted out their live blogs for people eager for the latest, and at one point the Herald's main headline read Assume you have been exposed, and that was a quote over a picture of people queuing at a supermarket, only one of whom had a mask, incidentally. Now that quote was a reference to comments by epidemiologist Michael Baker, though in the Herald's story itself, the professor didn't actually say that. He said that even people who might have recently received vaccine doses must be vigilant. They need to behave as if they're still vulnerable, he said. The vaccine's good, but it's not perfect. Ahead of the set-piece announcement by the PM at 6pm, the two main TV networks went hard and early with live coverage. Political editor Tova O'Brien was front and centre for News Hub.
4: We know that we can still access all of those essential services, so do not panic. Practice those basic public health measures and also bear in mind that the government might um, further restrict some of those public health measures so we might see um, mandatory QR scanning or mandatory mask wearing if we do shift through alert alert levels.
1: And all the while, mobile phone users were getting news notifications with headlines like lockdown looms from the Herald And the Herald also said it understood the COVID case was a Devonport resident aged in their 50s and evidently that's what Michael Mora understood as well because at 6pm for News Hub he was standing in the rain beside the main drag of Devonport telling viewers this while they waited for the Prime Minister to speak. There are of course several primary schools um, in this area Uh, there are intermediate schools and of course there's Takapuna Grammar but of course the advice at this point is what sort of Bruce Cunningham said in my story just then is to not panic to basically wait and listen for advice from health officials it's the most important thing. But it was the media themselves at that very moment, not waiting for official announcements. News
4: Talk ZB, breaking news. All right, we're standing by for the Prime Minister and Ashley Bloomfield. But with breaking news, Barry Soper, political editor, will tell us what he has heard. Go, Barry.
3: Yes, uh, Heather, I can confirm, and this is absolute. Uh, the it will the whole country will go into level four. Now, I'm not sure of what time that'll occur, but I assume at probably midnight tonight. But I can confirm that the government is about to announce that the whole country will go into a Level
4: 4 lockdown. Okay. so what we're hearing as well um, over at the Herald is that the Level 4 lockdown will apply to the North Island for a full week and the South Island for three days. Have you heard any of that kind of detail? Not yet? No, I haven't got the details.
1: As in the past, the Prime Minister spoke for some time before actually revealing the alert level change the nation was waiting to hear. And when that was done, Barry Soper patted himself on the back on News Talk ZB. For jumping the gun.
3: Listeners will be happy that I did tell them uh, just uh, before the Prime Minister. Well, in fact, 10 minutes before the, the Prime
4: Minister. Um, the foreplay
3: was, it went on for a long time. It drives me nuts that here she is. She's uh, commanding television time at six o'clock and goes on for 10 minutes before the public is told what the alert levels are going to be. So. Um, You know, I'm sure that people were relieved to know only on News Talk ZB what was happening around the country.
1: And shortly after that, there was a revealing moment on ZB as Coromandel District Mayor Sandra Gowdy seemed not to know the critical detail for her region. It was a seven day lockdown, not three.
0: And so I think for a three day lockdown, it's okay. Uh, It's the uncertainty that really rattles people. Um, But, you know, in emergencies, We do what we always do. We hunker down and do what we have to and just get through it. And we, we do good. We're good at it.
4: Sandra, you guys are in for seven days with Auckland. It's not three days for you.
0: Oh, sorry. Look, I only turned on the radio at six o'clock. Because I'm, a, <laughs> I'm um, like the bearer seriously. of bad I'm, news I'm, I'm, for you, Sandra. I'm on Port Jackson Road right in the middle of nowhere at the end of the peninsula. <laughs> and no one can get hold of me because I'm off grip.
1: Sandra Gowdy had already caused a stir by telling RNZ's Checkpoint she didn't use the COVID tracer app. And then she went on to tell Talk ZB she wasn't especially worried about Aucklanders heading to her region before midnight.
0: Am I worried about all the Aucklanders coming down? Well, if, if the Prime Minister always gives them a
4: heads up, so I guess I guess she's not worried. Do you have liked to have seen some, some police, um, I guess border patrols or something like that, in advance?
0: Well... What's that really going to do? Because the damage has already been done. So yeah. I'm, I'm picking that people will just hunker down, do what they need to do to keep themselves sta- safe. And, you know, even though people might go to the carmantle and go to their places in the carmantle, generally they hunker down and keep um, themselves pretty much to themselves.
1: Yeah. But even as Sandra Gowdy spoke there, the SUVs were rolling, or crawling, away from the big smoke. And caller after caller to News Talk ZB that night painted a vivid picture of the exodus. But some, like Paul, called ZB to say Aucklanders on the road weren't the real problem.
5: How do you think we feel, mate? We don't want these plague rats put into the hotels all throughout Auckland and then this incompetent government constantly
0: keeps letting this bloody virus get out.
1: Paul got pretty wound up in the course of that call about the so-called plague rats, prompting nighttime host Marcus Lush to push back a little.
0: You're not
5: coping, That's Paul, it, mate. You're not
0: coping, Paul. Mate, I'm coping perfectly well. I'm driving to my holiday home because I've got till eleven fifty-nine to get there. Why
5: and then would you the do?
0: Roadblocks will happen. To where are you driving to? To my holiday home. Yeah, whereabouts? In Auckland. Who are you with? I'm going with my wife. Well, good luck to her. Locked in a room for you with five days. Jeepers. Paul, good evening. <laughs>
1: Helps to be called Paul getting on the air on News Talk ZB, it seems. Meanwhile, other travellers heading to the Coromandel called in to update on roadblocks, which ended up in the news.
0: Some, oh, like some Marys, have put their cars right across the road and we can't get through. The police are there trying to get
4: us through, but they won't let anyone
0: through. So you saw the are people? They, oh, yes, we're, I'm sitting in the car right now, waiting to are get they across people, the marsh. Are,
5: are they people you know?
0: No, they're not people I know.
5: OK.
1: And the next day, Thames Coromandel District Deputy Mayor Murray McLean, getting a better signal evidently than Sandra Gowdy, told TVNZ 7 Sharp, Aucklanders really should stay away.
4: Yeah, you're talking about people going now, now that the lockdown has been announced.
1: Well,
5: yes, Hilary, last year, um, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, the Kopu-Hikarai Road was like Queen Street on a Friday night of people fleeing to the Coromandel. And uh, I say to those people, please stay at home. We're going to be, our essential services are operating. Don't put excess strain on them. We're not geared up for Christmas. And let's all obey the
1: rules. Now the next night on the Seven Sharp show, host Hilary Barry was encouraging everyone not to hit the shops. There is no need to panic. A sensible message, but at the end of that show she was back on the next one on TVNZ1 being not so sensible on the Paula Bennett fronted charades based game show Give Us a Clue alongside a former host of Seven Sharp. Tony Street,
4: cut, Cut. strangled, dead, murder, death, Death. murder, killed, killed, Killed. 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 kills, kills, kills.
1: And adding to the cognitive dissonance here, another TVNZ current affairs presenter, Jack Tame, popped up in the ad break during that show, wearing a mask and telling us this:
0: It could be a good opportunity for sme operators to catch up on some admin or get ahead of rosters, stock orders and schedules for the weeks ahead. Once things do reopen, try to support other small businesses as they bounce back.
1: Why was the Q&A host telling us that? Well, because it was actually an ad for an online accounting company. If we all pull together, experts say we should be out of Level 4 and back to business before long.
4: Cash flow doesn't need to be complicated. With zero.
1: On the next morning's breakfast show on TVNZ, news hosts were freestyling with the weather forecast.
0: You can get out and enjoy enjoy the sunshine, go for a walk, but don't forget to stay in your bubble and wear your mask. No Uh,
1: licking, no no licking. No licking, licking.
0: no pashing, any of that. A bit of morning frost, also possible. 16 for you in Hawke's Bay. (laughs) You've gone to the packs. You've just gone, (laughs) what a pashing. What's happened to you, Indira? (laughs) Not quite as good as we head
1: west. Frosty and not with a chance of pashing, is not the usual Met Service take and neither was this an hour later.
0: But a similar start through here a fine and frosty morning, you can expect some clouds to roll through later this afternoon. 16 is the high for whakatane, 11 for Topo.
1: You sound like a Catholic monk doing an income, <laughs> one of those, those chants. I... But whether you want your news presenters to freestyle the news like that or not, at least they were still there to do it. By Friday, the 7pm TV current affairs shows were getting pretty sparse. Seven Sharps co-host Hilary Barry, for example, had to keep her distance from TVNZ. What on earth is going on?
4: Oh, I know. The day started off so well. It was formal Friday. I was all shushed up. I was baking away. I got to seven sharp and then I got a phone call um, just letting me know that someone at an event I had been at last week that was at Spark Arena. It was a big awards ceremony, about a thousand people there. Uh, Someone who'd been working there had tested
1: positive. And they were two down for the project on three.
4: You're dropping like flies. I know, it's just me here, little lonely Laura. Um, Yesterday Jesse wasn't with us because he's waiting on someone in his bubble to
1: return a negative test result. And today, literally like 10 minutes ago, Jeremy got pinged. He was at an event. And by that stage there were also locations of interest outside Auckland and the Coromandel district as people tested positive in Wellington, which eventually meant an extension of the lockdown was announced later that day for the rest of New Zealand as well. And just like earlier in the week... Some in the media weren't that willing to wait around for official confirmation of the cases. Just before noon, the morning host on News Talk ZB in Wellington, Nick Mills, told his listeners this. One of the things that sort of annoyed the heck out of me and our colleagues is rumours, COVID rumours, like the Wanaka outbreak. How do we manage these rumours and what should be the consequences for misinformation? Richard?
4: Uh, I quite agree. It's infuriating, isn't it, when we're we're, we're trying to be Team 5 million and and work together and you get these kinds of messages coming out.
1: It was Richard Wagstaff of the Council of Trade Unions and former ACT MP Heather Roy agreed. Heather, it's definitely uh, social media at its worst, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. um, I don't know, it seems to bring out the worst in some people. Um, It makes the real messaging much harder to get through. But people should only, in situations like COVID... Take their information from reliable sources.
1: But having blamed social media for all this, the same Nick Mills had told his listeners this barely 90 minutes earlier on News Talk ZB. There's a lot of chatter about a positive test in Wellington. Uh, our Herald colleagues uh, have heard the word. Nothing is confirmed, and we will not have confirmation until one o'clock. We're hearing if anything happens, you'll get fully updated on Newstalk ZB. That's what we're here for. So if we do get com- confirmation of these cases in Wellington, you'll hear it first with us. And then Nick Mills went on to say, where there's smoke, there's usually flames. And just before noon, Katrina Bennett in ZB's Wellington newsroom was on air, telling him that two cases in Wellington were confirmed and one unconfirmed, though she didn't say who had confirmed them or not.
4: This is a leak, really, um, or, or a brilliant scope, depending what side of the... Of the debate you're on, I guess for us it was um, it was a big news scoop. Um, you know, one of one of our reporters obviously has a source that told them. So um, yeah, it is it is unusual because they have been trying to or when I say they, the government has been trying to keep the lid on on these cases until the one o'clock and sort of streamline the release of information. But uh, this one leaked out this morning. Of course, that does then make people nervous, anxious because we don't know the full details. But, you know, there's the flip side to that is surely we want to get this information out as quickly as possible.
1: Well three cases were later confirmed in Wellington at the official briefing at 1pm and it did indeed make some people anxious while journalists complained to authorities and on social media about the time it was taking to get locations of interest and we've been here before. At this time last year Health Minister Chris Hipkins responded this way to reporters asking repeatedly about rumours on social media concerning cases of community transmission in the capital.
5: Um, there were rumors circulating around Wellington yesterday about positive tests. Um, I spent a bit of time chasing those down and can confirm that they were incorrect. Um, This is one of the challenges that we have across the country at the moment. People are at a heightened level of anxiety. That's understandable. Um, There is one source of truth, though, uh, when it comes to these things, and that's the announcements we make here. And one of the reasons... Uh, that we are not drip-feeding information out, we are doing it in a consolidated and coordinated way, um, is because we don't want to spend our time you know, chasing down and reconciling information. We'll do that properly, and then when we make the announcements, we'll make sure that, that, that the information is all verifiable and fact-based.
1: And that further frustrated journalists who were already annoyed by what they called government-by-daily press conference throughout the 2020 COVID crisis. Now, at that time, the minister was also pressed on the issue like this.
5: Would you consider perhaps delivering more, um, more round-the-clock updates to the Ministry of Health to allow yourselves to clamp down on this sort of speculation and get some of it proved correct and others, other speculation completely discounted so that people weren't waiting on the 1pm update so much? Because some of this speculation goes like wildfire for hours and hours and hours before you're able to at this yeah. press Look, I'll make a couple of observations on that. The first is, uh, through our testing and contact tracing processes, the people that need to know, know as soon as they need to know, as soon as the information is out there. The information that we're putting out each day at 1 o'clock is designed to ensure that we can test... The veracity of all of that information, that we can draw all of the links that we need to draw and give people as complete a picture as possible.
1: But another factor here for officials and politicians is that the more they release information in response to media or public demands, any instance of imperfection will be cast as evidence of incompetence by their critics. Now back then there was also an election campaign just getting started and the National Party leader and deputy leader were hinting to the media the government might be hiding information.
5: Uh, all very interesting things to have happened uh, a matter of hours before there was a notification of uh, a, the largest uh, residential part of New Zealand going into the uh, three Street lockdown.
4: So what are, you, what are you saying there then? Can you just tell, what are you, what are you saying there? On, just facts. But but what do you mean by that? I mean are you saying it's not a coincidence that they knew? Well
1: why don't you ask some questions questions. And one year on from that, on News Hub Nation yesterday, Judith Collins didn't quite get so conspiratorial. But she did say the official daily updates weren't adequate.
0: Waiting for a one o'clock announcement every day, this actually adds to the anxiety. It doesn't actually help people that much, So. Uh, so as much certainty as possible.
1: As the number and the spread of COVID cases grow in the coming days around the country, the government and the media alike will feel more pressure for more information as soon as possible. And for both, it could be a case of careful what you wish for if mistakes are made. It was only last month that U.S. forces suddenly and without warning abandoned their bases in Afghanistan so swiftly that looters descended upon them faster than the Afghan government forces who were supposed to take them over. Now at the time on MediaWatch, we noted that all that echoed the chaotic evacuation of the U.S. embassy in Saigon way back in 1975. But the scenes that truly echoed the last choppers out of Saigon 45 years ago came earlier this week in Kabul with a Kiwi journalist there to see them.
4: Earlier we had two, hel- and there's another one taking off to my left, if we just pan over here, saluding. And we see...
1: So, Charlotte, one assumes uh, that that is left, the hand hand evacuation left, process ongoing, sir. That what we're looking at in terms of yeah. helicopters. Is yeah. that is that right?
2: Yeah, what you're looking at, we've just had
4: uh, two more helicopters take off from the U.S. Embassy.
1: Charlotte Bellis, formerly a TVNZ reporter in Christchurch and now in her second stint in Kabul for the Qatar-based TV news channel Al Jazeera, and incidentally that was the only global TV news channel that was available free to air in New Zealand, which was offering live coverage of the Taliban taking over this past week. The news organisations that had officers and staff in the city did a much better job reporting this historic turn of events there, and they were also less surprised by the speed of the Afghan government's capitulation. The BBC, for example, has a long-established headquarters there, and last month its veteran correspondent, Lise Doucette, said that resistance to the Taliban was already crumbling And she wrote on the BBC website that the vibe in Kabul at the time was just like it was in early 1989 when the occupying Soviet forces were preparing to quit after almost nine years of fruitless warfare. But even seasoned defence analysts and experts were taken by surprise this past week by the Taliban taking towns as fast as they could move through them, as one New York Times writer put it. Less than a fortnight ago, the Chief of the UK's Armed Forces, General Sir Nick Carter, told the BBC this. The Afghan security forces that are there and the government as a whole are capable of holding on to those bits of the country that really matter. And I think that's important that they do do that, because if they do do that, there's a chance then I think the Taliban are more likely to come to the table, because they'll recognise that they have to find a political compromise. But on Tuesday, the uncompromising Taliban were alone at the table in their first press conference since taking over, where Charlotte Bellis, who was one of just three female journalists in the room, asked about the rights of women and girls. What
2: assurances can you give to women and girls that their rights will
5: be protected? We will be
1: afforded all their rights, uh, whether it is in work or other activities, because women are a key part of society. And uh, we are guaranteeing all their rights. Now, most media have been pretty sceptical of the moderate face projected by what some call the Taliban 2.0. But speaking to Morning Report this week, veteran Afghan reporter Bilal Sarawi said that press conference was a significant moment.
2: Today was also an extraordinary day in the life of Afghan media when a presenter, a female presenter from Afghanistan's Tolo television Uh, interviewed a Taliban leader on screen, something not possible 20 years ago, A, because the Taliban didn't allow that, B, because Afghanistan didn't have Tolo news.
1: Tolo news that he referred to there as a local TV news operation that was founded in better post-Taliban times back in 2004. But it's part of a change, Bilal Sawari says, that has changed Afghanistan.
2: Today here he was facing Afghanistan's most vibrant media. That's the outcome of the last 20 years. Uh, You know, the Taliban have realized that this is not the same Kabul that they were forced to leave after the Americans toppled their government in 2001, that there are massive social and political transformation. For example, today, Afghanistan has a citizen journalism generation. People have access to Facebook and Twitter, and there's a generation of Afghan, uh, you know, uh, reporters, both inside and outside of the country. However, It is also true that the Taliban also have a generation of their own uh, in the cultural department, the political department, media department, that they are aware of how the media world works.
1: But while Afghanistan has changed, as Bilal said there, have our media been keeping up? When Bamiyan province fell to the Taliban last week, it was barely reported here, even though most of the 3,500 New Zealand personnel deployed to Afghanistan served in the provincial reconstruction team there, including eight of those who died. And the morning after Kabul fell, TVNZ news began like this.
0: So we're heading to the Middle East now where Afghanistan is on the brink of a total takeover. President Ashraf Ghani's fled the country and the Taliban's entered the
1: capital Kabul. Now it might seem like nitpicking but Afghanistan really isn't in the Middle East, at least not in the way that news reports commonly refer to that region. One journalist on Twitter also found it pretty funny to hear that the Taliban had an office in Doha. He wondered if there was a receptionist or a water cooler and do they do fire drills? And that's just a joke, of course, but that office was crucial to what actually happened this past week. Approved premises in other countries is how forces that aren't recognised as nation-states actually engage in diplomacy with those who are. The so-called Doha dialogue between the United States and the Taliban and the Afghan government paved the way earlier this year for the US to withdraw its troops in the first place. But media outlets here were alive to the issue of interpreters and other Afghans at risk because they've worked with the New Zealand Defence Force. Before Cabinet met to discuss that last Monday, Stuff's Thomas Munch and The Heralds Kurt Bayer and Derek Cheng were all highlighting the problem and some of the individuals at the heart of it. The Dominion Post put the plight of one of them, Noroz Ali, on the front page of the paper under the headline Please, My Life is in Danger and many in the media will know that it's those same people who make it possible for foreign armies to operate in Afghanistan are also those who are absolutely critical to helping foreign journalists cover a country which they'd struggle to report meaningfully on their own. The Herald last weekend also reported that our government had no plans to repatriate any existing Afghan nationals, and on July 5th the immigration minister had turned down Please from Afghan interpreters and other staff. But they've recently had to reconsider that, and media reporting may have had a hand in it. Stuff's Thomas Munch this week also reported that an Afghan journalist who'd worked on the government's Operation Burnham inquiry had asked New Zealand for help and 28 New Zealand journalists from six media organisations signed a letter calling for the Immigration Minister Chris Farfoy to help Khalil Rahman Omaid and his family leave Afghanistan. And the government later said they would, and that Air Force Hercules is on its way this weekend. Overseas big names and news media have also joined forces to try and rescue those who've worked for them over the years, though that, it seems, will be easier said than done. Even those who have approved visas can't get to Kabul airport right now because it's still being besieged by people trying to get out of the country, as CNN's correspondent Clarissa Ward discovered this weekend. You are
0: a translator? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes.
5: Can you see this? Uh, what, yes.
0: uh, what we are Victor. doing?
3: So they're saying they all
0: worked at American camps as translators for the Americans, and they can't get into that airport. These Taliban fighters are a little upset with
1: us. And Clarissa Ward discovered that reporting situations like that wasn't so safe even for foreign crews like hers.
4: Suddenly, two other Taliban charged towards us. You can see their rifle butt. Raised to strike producer Brent Swales. When the fighters
0: are told we have permission to report, they lower their weapons and let us pass.
1: Clarissa Ward said that she and her CNN team have some protection while they're there, but they won't be in Afghanistan for the long haul. And as embassies pull out and the Taliban move in, international media may well follow suit. On CNN, Clarissa Ward was also asked what will become of the local media outlets that have sprung up over the past 20 years.
0: Most of them are pretty much hunkered down at the moment, waiting to see what's going to happen. Some of these journalists and reporters know that they have a big X on their backs, that they're big targets because they have been so outspoken against the Taliban in the past. And, and while the Taliban is, is trying to adapt this much more mature and pragmatic tone and saying that they're not going to hurt anybody, that they want things to be peaceful, that there will be no retaliation, can be extremely extremely difficult uh, from Doha or from Quetta to uh, accurately and actively discipline and and keep charge uh, of fighters who are roaming around on the ground drunk with power in a city of six million people. There's a huge capacity for things to go wrong.
1: That's CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's in Kabul for now. But Al Jazeera's Charlotte Bellis told NewsHub Nation this weekend that she and the Al Jazeera network are staying, and she's even been giving the Taliban spokespeople a bit of media advice.
4: As far as establishing how our relationship is going to work with media,
2: not just myself, but Afghan media, you have to appreciate, like, we will be critical. You're in the government now, and you're going to have to deal with it. I will always be fair, and I will give you a chance to
4: respond but we're not going to hold back.
1: And it'll be interesting to see how the Taliban respond to that in the days and years ahead. Well, That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.